Welcome everyone to the Faith Recovery Podcast, where three failed pastors, although today we're missing Alex, seek to discover what is truly good and beautiful about the gospel, having recovered our faith. Recovering, maybe, yeah. Yes, from bad ideas about God and religion and Christianity. And we're in a series, uh, what did we call this series? Uh, The series was called Unbelievable, Addressing Obstacles to Faith. Right. And uh, the first section of the series is Big Problems with the Big Book. Yes. I've been seeing stuff on the blogosphere and stuff. I mean, we have, we've done this for years uh, that people have pointed out the things in the Bible that are odd and, um, or difficult to believe. And, and I think we have to grant that those things are there. Um, you know, I, th- I think that the Bible has enjoyed a, a degree of credibility and and whether it's deserved or not i think is something that we we can't just assume especially in a i think a increasingly post-christian society so i think it's good to to get in there and and look at some of the really hard you know uh difficulties with scripture we touched on some of those last week let's fire off some bullet points what are some of the problems that people have with scripture uh well they they have say historical problems you know um they're the things like the difficulty finding archaeological evidence for the exodus and the wandering in the wilderness um we obviously have scientific problems like reading genesis 1 and the claim that the earth is six thousand years old and stuff like that difficult to substantiate uh, especially up against all the stuff with evolution geology stuff like that the age of the earth age of the universe so it seems unscientific there are degrees to which the stuff that it records and claims to be historic, difficult to corroborate. Um, I, I think lately the bigger problems are moral stuff like God commanding the Israelites to wipe out every man, woman, and child in a certain region and um, very brutal, harsh kinds of um, punishments, penalties for sins. Um, there's problems in terms of sexism, racism, tribalism, lots of isms. So uh, all of this kind of adds up and people say, I I really, uh, not only is it difficult for me to believe that this is true, but also I I feel a moral obligation to uh, repudiate it and to distance myself from these ideas, I I think a lot of times. Mm -hmm. So that's a challenge and, and I don't think we should minimize those problems. Now, in our, in this series, we're attempting. Uh, are we attempting to tackle each of those problems head on? Are we attempting to just grant those as problems, set them aside, and then look at different uh, matters? Yes. Well, I, I wouldn't say set them aside. I would say that um, to grant them as I, I wouldn't even call them problems. Uh, I, maybe difficulties or or whatever, but. Um, I would say that when we have those problems with the Bible, it's because we're expecting it to do something that it wasn't designed to do. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, it, you know, if we say we buy a new car and and, and we're, we expected it to fly or something, you know, and we're like, well, you, you know, you're a brilliant engineer and, you know, I have a friend and he drove this thing off a cliff and it just went straight down into the ravine and... I'll never buy another car from you again. So that that seems to be kind of where our discussion. So it, I, I think it addresses these difficulties and it, and it can acknowledge that 
while we wouldn't want to build a society where women are somewhat, you know, property uh, or subjugated in some way or homosexuals are, are stoned to death or, you know, things like that. We, we wouldn't want to do those kinds of things. Um, at the same time, we can still use the Bible and, and gain from it and uh, according to the way it is designed and what it really claims for itself. So, mm-hmm. so is that where we want to start today is what does the Bible claim for itself and how does its claims about itself speak to our assumptions about the Bible, uh, correct our assumptions that we have when we come to the Bible as the Word of God. Yes, definitely. And, and, I, and I think it's important, you know, when we talk about what it claims about itself, it's just, I'm, I'm troubled when we go to the Bible, we find things that are objectionable, and then we manufacture an alternative way of viewing the Bible so that... Um, you know, it either doesn't say what it seems to say, or um, it was never meant to say, you know, those kinds of things, or we kind of disavow the original narrative in some way. Um, as an example, certain recent people, and so I'm, I'll pick on these guys since Alex isn't here to defend them, but, you know, uh, Brian Zond and others that would say things like, well, we see Jesus in the Gospels, and Jesus in the Gospels is kind and accepting and loving and forgiving and all these things. And um, when we compare him with the God of the Old Testament, apparently there's you know there's there's a disparity there, and we have to choose. So let's choose Jesus, and that we can take a black marker to all the rest of it and just ignore it. Uh, and that doesn't seem to be honest in in some ways uh if if i were an unbeliever uh hearing that i i would struggle to accept that unless i were just very desperate to believe in jesus um i would just rationally jesus believed the old testament you know he he served the old testament god so paul seems to have understood and and gave credence to the entire old testament you know we kind of have this notion that scripture is inspired and, and if we're able to say well the stuff we disagree with we'll just ignore or we'll invalidate then there's there's a degree to which we kind of make ourselves the arbiter of what is inspired rather than subjecting ourselves to it and i know that there are dangers to dogma and stuff like that but um there are also dangers to going back and redacting this kind of revisionist approach to everything, to history, to religion, it really does kind of assert this modern bias, the sense that we're smarter now or, or whatever, and we don't learn from what something else might be trying to tell us. So mm-hmm. we've got to be careful and, and not discount or invalidate those stories that are difficult in the Old Testament. We have to find a way to say um, those are legitimate and they have a purpose and we can read them and accept them completely and in their entirety and at the same time not try to advocate for a society that would be regressive brutal bigoted or whatever you know and and on what basis so my question is on what basis can can we do that can we receive these stories and yet not um apply them as authoritative for our lifestyles our choices today right yeah and that and that's the challenge um you know i i think i think it was robbie castle went over the at jbu that um 
was a professor that I had and, and I don't know if I inferred this from what she was telling me or she said this specifically, but uh, she was talking about the scripture as being incarnate um, expression of, of God. And so uh, when I think about Jesus as the incarnation, you know, and, and I imagine what, what would it have been like to, to meet Jesus, to talk with Jesus as the Nazarene carpenter in the first century, you know, in the common era. And, um, you know, would what would he know what would he think what would his perceptions be and and it's difficult for me to think he would you know he would kind of turn to us and out of the side of his mouth say i know that the sun is the center of the solar system but these guys are idiots you know <laughs> so i'm going to speak down to their level right right or that he'd be like hey 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 you know let's not talk about the earth being round it's just going to confuse everybody, you know. I, <laughs> you know, I, it, it's difficult to imagine um, Jesus as having a particular scientific insight, or, or, or even uh, having, say, a social agenda that just hadn't been invented yet, mm-hmm. uh, because he's the Son of God. I mean. And you can say, well, if he's the son of God, surely he knew more than the average person. I think that's true. But, you know, what was it? What was the discipline that he specialized in? You know, was he was he particularly adept at rocket science, computer engineering? You know, what what were his what were his specialties? And, Carpentry you know, and Bible study. Right. 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 And so he uh, right. We, we know that he did OK in, in those conversations, but he, he probably didn't. In, in terms of, you know, software engineering and stuff like that. Uh, and and it's difficult for you to imagine that he had these scientific insights on account of the fact that he was fully human and exactly. not just fully God. Right, yeah. You're trying to take account of his full humanity. Exactly. Well, and, and if you can imagine, you know, if he comes into the world as a baby, and that's what's really problematic, um, you know, we're really claiming that our God crapped his pants and, you know, stuff like that. Um so, you know, it, it's difficult to imagine that, you know, even if, if we were to somehow suppose that he's this demigod and he has insights uh, that even transcend ours technologically and scientifically, you know, as this first century carpenter, uh, you know, at some point he didn't, you know, when he was three, he probably wasn't doing quadratic equations or, you know, dealing with astrophysics. So if that were the case, then probably... You know, and he's fully the son of God, say, the entire time. We don't really need to suppose that as an adult he had special insight either. Right. So, And you're saying that's an analogy for seeing Scripture as both a fully human document and a fully inspired document. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so, how is that an analogy? Spell that out for us. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think that if we can't expect the son of God to have some sort of special insight uh, on those kinds of things— we probably can't expect Isaiah or Moses or these other guys to have that either, um, that they are dealing with specifically, you know, religious stuff, uh, subject matter. And, um, and, and I think that what we see in, in Scripture and inspiration is this invisible hand moving people along, writing a story in their actions and their reactions and the things that happen to them and that that story is then being told so the inspiration 
we could say is in the events as much as it is in the interpretation of the events or the retelling of the events themselves. So where, you know, with Jesus, we believe he's the son of God because of particular events like the crucifixion, the resurrection, not that every word he said had full awareness of all, all accurate truths to be known. Um, and <clears throat> the fact that he didn't know certain things just simply affirms the events themselves. So I think same with scripture that that if we can go back in scripture and find depictions and uh, circumstances and all of this that that begin to tell a cohesive story, reveal a cohesive picture, then we will have established that the Bible is inspired, though it is also incarnate. So just as you know, Christ's resurrection, as Christ, Christians contend that Christ was raised from the dead, is this kind of affirmation of the value of his ministry and of who he is. So I think that we can look at something that the Torah, the Tanakh, you know, the Hebrew scriptures point to, and we can say, okay, well, that was accomplished. That has come to pass. So all of these are they were superintended by God. I think that's the word that, you know, we use that God isn't, he's not in the minutia. He's not a micro manager. He's not dictating word for word to people for in, for the most part, but that he is orchestrating things, or perhaps we can say he orchestrated them from the very beginning of time, set things in motion. Not that he departed because he's equally present and all, eras and all times, but that, you know, if we were to imagine Abraham, you know, was Abraham, you know, was God just searching the earth for somebody like Abraham or did God have Abraham in mind when he created the universe? You know, uh, if we believe God is who we say he is, then, then the existence of someone like an Abraham was, was superintended, you know? And so I, I think that's the case with scripture is that there are events and um, insights and stuff like that that are superintended by God and were planned by him and that we see that in scripture. And because of that, we can give credence to the message of scripture. Um, just as an analogy, it, it, this may seem a bit difficult to grasp, but you know, in, in John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. And these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And so that, that points to two approaches to scripture. Jesus says, scripture bears witness. And the Pharisees thought that scripture contains insight um, and or you know, the final insight, if you will, or revelation. And that's, that's just a human mentality. We're always going to do that. We want to have some sort of a special code key or vessel, something we can hold in our hands, something we can manipulate and control and study that will give us the knowledge of good and evil, which is kind of an ancient problem that mm -hmm. we've had, you know? Um, so, you know, this dichotomy that we have in, in Genesis two and three, that, Hey, there's two trees in this garden. There's this tree of life. Now, if I were writing the story, I would say the other one is the tree of death. 
right? Mm-hmm. Or I would say the tree of good and the tree of evil. But I didn't write the story. So these two trees both sound like good things, you know? Mm-hmm. Life, the knowledge of good and evil. You know, just generally, classically, we wouldn't say the knowledge of good and evil is a bad thing. Life is a good thing. But for some reason, the knowledge of good and evil tree was prohibited. Now, it's interesting that Jesus says, these testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Mm -hmm. So that choice is kind of being made again and again. And when we come to the very concept of revelation, what we're looking for is the knowledge of, I I, I think good and evil sometimes, it, it presupposes some sort of a conceptual evil. Uh, you know, it, it good and evil generally has to do with, with beneficial and harmful. You know, we want to pursue what's beneficial. We want to avoid what's harmful, and that's the human condition. And we want somebody to give us the, the means to do that. But we don't want a God, you know, somebody who is all-seeing, all-knowing, who was going to hold us accountable. We just don't want him around. We, you know, we'd rather go it on our own. And I think that that's the temptation with the concept of revelation, that we're going to be granted special insight. We're going to be able to do X, Y, and Z, and, and almost almost like casting a spell. You know, if you stop working on Saturday and you avoid pork, you can manipulate the forces of the universe to live a long life, have sons and not daughters, your livestock are going to multiply. And, you know, and we begin to think, how do we manipulate God through this special insight or manipulate reality? And if scripture is an instrument to allow us to do that, then it has to be 100% infallible. Right. Then we have to harmonize, harmonize all the inconsistencies and have an answer for all the objections about historical inaccuracy or scientific inaccuracy. Yes. Yeah. But if scripture was inspired for a different purpose, right, then we are to some extent released from, from solving those problems. Exactly. And you're saying that scripture was inspired for the purpose of revealing Christ and in the gospel to us. Is that yeah. right? Is that what yeah. you're saying? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, so uh, I'll, I'll go real geek here, but um, I don't know if anybody out there's seen any sort of uh, kung fu movies, but Bruce Lee had a movie called Enter the Dragon. And there's this iconic scene in this movie where he's uh, Bruce Lee is he's training you know a, a disciple a student in kung fu and and the disciple messes up in some way when they're sparring and and Bruce Lee is is explaining how kung fu is not about over focusing on the details of your technique but but kind of being able to be in a a place of of uh, equanimity while you're fighting somebody, you know, and, and, and he says, it's, it, it's like a finger pointing away to the moon. <laughs> and, and, you know, the disciple is looking at his, at Bruce Lee's hand. And so Bruce Lee slaps him on the top of the head and says, don't look at the finger <laughs> or you will miss all of the heavenly glory, you know? And, and it's like, we're, we're looking at the finger and we're saying, is that a wart? <laughs> you know, how could that, how could that finger be the finger of God? And uh, we're missing the fact that, you know, it, it's pointing away to something. And Jesus is saying, hey, Scripture is pointing away from itself. You, you've you been looking at the finger for thousands of years, and it's gotten you nowhere. You're, you're not good people, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, you're so deluded by this approach to Scripture that you can't even see the object of Scripture when it comes 
and it's looking you in the face. You know, I mean, how does how is it that the Jews ended up being the ones to crucify Christ? You know, why 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 is it that the pagans are like, I, I guess we'll crucify him if you really insist. You know, I mean, how did how is it that they end up being the ones that are kind of baying for his blood, while the Gentiles are a little bit more open minded? You know, I, I think that there's something about how we use scripture that that can really get us into trouble, and I don't and sometimes. Believers are the worst about it. And you're saying that's it's human nature to to treat to, to treat our holy books that way. Yes, and that we un, unwittingly turn it on its head. Uh, and Christians have been doing this for a long time, and that's right. and that creates problems. Yes, that are that we don't necessarily have to have as stumbling blocks, mm-hmm. precisely because of our approach to Scripture. Exactly. Maybe to use another analogy, if you can imagine, um, you're out in the desert in Jordan <laughs> and, and you're digging in, you know, these tells and stuff and an archeological dig and, and you find a, a rudimentary telescope, you know, and it's say it doesn't have a barrel, but it's got, you know, two or three rings where there were lenses somehow. And, and, and you can tell that this telescope was only probably could only magnify things by a power of 50 or something, you know, um, and that it had certain design deficiencies or whatever. And, and, you know, and, and instead of saying, wow, that's impressive that, you know, people were, they were trying to look to the heavens and that they had seen this, it, you say, man, that, that's not even close to the Hubble, you know. Uh, and I think that Scripture is supposed to point us to the heavens, if you will, figuratively. It's supposed to show us something else. And, and, it's a rudimentary instrument in some ways because, you know, it was produced by people who didn't understand the world like we do. But the fact that it accomplishes its ends should impress us. And as we'll see, the fact that it accomplishes its ends in a way that has a massive amount of foresight, like supernatural foresight, is something that we should at least take notice and, and perhaps consider that there's something behind it, you know. Mm-hmm. Along those lines, uh, the the complaint that the scripture endorses um, practices which we would consider to be immoral, mm-hmm. unjust, um, is one of the problems that we're um, that people are having with with scripture that we're touching on today. And yet, many people have argued that while it does have these problematic stories, these problematic teachings. It also is the very same book that sowed the seeds for um, the abolition of slavery, for human rights in general. Mm-hmm. Um, would you would you agree with those arguments? Would you say the scripture, um, while it has these problems morally, so to speak, uh, it also points away toward a more developed ethic, and it's actually the source for this uh, better ethic which we have today. I don't, I don't know. I, I feel like if I were if I were um, arguing the counterpoint, I would say that those values were largely present in Western civilization before the gospel. Um, you know, Socrates, Plato, those guys dealt a lot with these Enlightenment, you know, concepts. So yes and no. I, I, I feel that the gospel. The gospel affirms, or you know, the biblical narrative affirms that people have inherent value, um, and that kind of a thing. But at the same time, some of the Greco-Roman ideals, and, and again, if if 
if I were in an argument with somebody who was who was rabidly atheistic or was critical of the Christian system, I probably wouldn't use that argument just because Greco-Roman society had a degree, not not entirely, but but a degree to which um, there was value on the individual and stuff like that. Now they they still I think were sexist um, and that they owned slaves and stuff like that. Um, and Aristotle probably moved them backward a long way by by saying a a slave has worth the slave's worth is based on the work that he can accomplish. So, you know that that's probably a a pretty big step backward. But uh, yeah, I, I, it would be difficult to say that these Western liberal values are entirely attributable to the Judeo Christian narrative that. A lot of people would say, well, these, these would have grown out of classical thought apart from that intrusion, you know, that that it had we had we continued to listen to Socrates, um, that we probably would have gotten there anyway. I don't know that that's the case uh, since I'm on it. I, I think it's in, it's interesting to me uh, if you read the Republic, uh, Plato's Republic, and it's supposed to be all this series of conversations Socrates is is having these um, conversations with both his acolytes and also his opponents and um, talking about what is righteousness, what is goodness, what is, you know, justice, why is it worth anything? Um, how do you engineer the perfect society? What would be there? What shouldn't be there? And so Socrates has this contention that, um, that righteousness is, is worth pursuing on its own. And the counter argument is that righteousness is only valuable if you're perceived to be righteous. That if people, if if doing right gains you, you know, social equity, then it's worth it. If if you could get social equity but do evil, then that's what you should do. That that's the kind of the counter argument. And they're just saying, look, what good does it do if you do the right thing and you get killed? You know, how does that help anybody? Um, and Socrates would say, well, righteousness has value for its own sake. Um, but at, by the end of, of the Republic and all these conversations, the only value that there can be in righteousness is if there is an afterlife. Mm -hmm. Socrates, he, he, he speaks of somebody that he heard about who died in battle, but for some reason didn't decay. And 10 days later got up and was you know, resuscitated, revived, and began to tell about this afterlife where people's deeds were being weighed and measured, and there was a judgment. <laughs> so, you know, we could say, well, the classical ideals would lead us away from, uh, you know, would lead us into virtue and away from, you know, kind of this society that dehumanizes people. But only if we retain Socrates' view that there's a resurrection Mm. And a judgment, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is the irony that, you know, Socrates, for all of his brilliance and Plato, for all of his brilliance in, in retelling Socrates, there there is no there is no inherent value to doing good if there's nothing after this. Which is not a piece of the current Western liberal ethic. Exactly. And belief system. And, and uh, it occurs to me that also, um, in a way, we're there again even I'm judging the Bible by the Western liberal belief system and I'm needing to defend the Bible according to the Western liberal belief system mm -hmm. um, and I think what you would say is that that um, 
that scripture is actually pointing to something a much a much higher ideal than the Western liberal belief system. Yes. Um, for all its emphasis on human rights and justice and freedom and equality, uh, that there's a sacrificial love and agape love that is an ethic that's yeah. coming out of scripture that goes so much farther. Yeah, yeah. And that's what the scripture is pointing to. It's not pointing toward uh, a Western liberal uh, democratic yeah. set of values. Sure, sure. And and I mean, to, I think to be fair, th- those who would say that we have this inherent sense of values and we can build a society on it, I think that they need to grant that the communist uh, regimes of the 20th century had those same values and, and maybe took them to their furthest extent. And as a result, were responsible for at least 100 million deaths. Um, that those values in and of them can turn on themselves. So if we can say, you know, everybody needs to be equal. Well, what if somebody says, but everybody's not equal and we need to, we need to incentivize, um, mo- you know, people being motivated in industry and stuff like that. And, and the people who are more competent and other things should have, uh, make a better income. Well, you know, you say that, but now you're the problem. We're going to have to kill you, uh, you know? And so we end up the very values that we say are, are, have transcended the scripture have practically speaking resulted in far more deaths than even what, you know, was recorded in scripture, uh, that Israel did, you know, in, in moving into the land and wiping out the indigenous, indigenous people there in in Palestine. So, um, yeah, I I think that when our values are challenged that, uh, you know, the rubber meets the road, we Western liberal values are not quite as um, benign as as we think they are, uh, as we wish they were, um, that when the rubber meets the road, where those very values could lead us to commit atrocities and to justify those. So, even a value-driven system, even a system of morality. I, I, I would say, I would go so far as to say that, um, that what the scripture reveals is that um, even morality and ethics are outmoded. Um, they are irrelevant compared to um, this higher pursuit. Um, so, yeah, that, I, I think that's, that's fair to say, that that God is revealing something that transcends even our concepts of right and wrong. Um, and that gets back to that knowledge of good and evil and the, you know, that this desire that we have to, to possess the ultimate value system or, you know, guidance that we can take and master rather than being transformed ourselves by something outside of ourselves. I'm just in summary review, and as I'm reflecting on this, I think that the upshot of this is that we don't need to uh, harmonize Genesis 1 with modern cosmology. We don't need to harmonize um, the uh, stories about genocide in the Old Testament with a modern Western liberal ethic. Yeah and so on and so forth. Right, right. So because because yeah, fill in because, the blank well, for me. God has God obviously it seems had an agenda and and so as we begin to see and and maybe this would this would be an ends justifies the means sort of a thing and and I I don't think that's off the table for us, you know. I, a lot of times people will say well Christians are dogmatic and all that and everybody's dogmatic to some degree if you have any sort of fiber to your belief system if there's any sort of rigidity to it then 
then you have some dogma. And if you don't have any rigidity to it, then why talk about anything, you know, because nothing matters that much. But, you know, I, but at the same time, I think there needs to be a level of, of, of pragmatics to our value system as well, or else we end up, you know, in, instead of doing the uh, right thing for the wrong reason or whatever, you know, we, we end up doing the wrong thing for the right reason or whatever. We end up, you know, telling the Nazis that the Jews are hiding in our neighbor's house um, because we don't want to tell a lie. And, and mm-hmm. so, you know, there has to be a pragmatic side to our value system and there has to be a dogmatic side to every value system. All that to say is that um, all of that stuff, it, if it gets us to Jesus, you know, then that's the point. Now, I, what a lot of people miss is, is that in, in that, that brutality that, that seems to be prescribed by God, that, that God had given those people 400 years to repent. A lot of times, you know, we say, wow, they just came in, they ambushed these folks, you know, they wiped them out. But but this story, this concept that God gives people time to repent and then he comes in in judgment and that that judgment is swift, it is decisive, it is final. So, you know, those, I think those gentler, kinder Christians, if you will, who want to go back and kind of apologize for those Old Testament stories and and maybe even kind of do some sort of revisionist theology there. I, I think, you know, we, we have to deal with this idea that there's yet a judgment to come and that the fatality rate of that is going to be much higher than anything that happened in Palestine, but that the recurring theme throughout Scripture, and this is where I would challenge somebody. I would say, look, if, if you're not okay with God, you know, executing judgment on whole societies, that's a deal breaker. I recommend you find a different belief system. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's not, to me, it doesn't seem tenable to because say you're a Christian and not believe God is going to judge. And by judge, I mean, kill people wholesale. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if, if you say God is not entitled to do that, then we don't have much to discuss because you, you have a concept of God, uh, of a God who is accountable to you know human morality and who must conform to what we conceive of as proper human behavior and that god just doesn't it doesn't really work well even theologically logically you know logically and theologically it doesn't work so okay so all that to say i the story of of that genocide and that kind of stuff it plays into a bigger picture of israel becoming a nation and Israel becoming a nation lends itself to the story of David, you know, and of this kingdom of mm. God mediated through a human who is completely surrendered to God. Mm-hmm. And, um, and this hope for that, this captivity, the presence of synagogues throughout the known world, that the genocide in, in, uh, there in the book of Joshua and other, you know, other scriptures that those have to do number one with an affirmation of God's right to judge people after a prolonged period of waiting on that society to repent. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that God does that. And I think all, you know, that should be a cautionary tale to everybody, uh, you know, that God is well within his rights to uncreate that which he's created. Mm-hmm. And um, he will do that after, a protracted period from our perspective, 400 years is a long time. I mean, how long has the United States been around? 250 years or something? 
So we're not even close. We're just a little over the halfway mark to that. So 400 years, and that's after God kind of already decided to, to judge this group of people. He's like, that's your last warning. I'm coming back in 400 years. You know, I mean, that's a long time. But And, and it also suggests that people are supposed to be able to ascertain the basics about who God is, whether they have a Bible or not, which gets back to this notion that the Bible has to be perfect. Why would it? Why does the Bible have to be perfect in every way in the sense that, or I think it's perfect in what it's made to do, but it doesn't have to be infallible because well, Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. You know, God didn't start revealing himself with the writing of the Bible. And it's not limited to that. So why would it have to be infallible? All that to say, um, you know, the that the stuff that we read about there is a part of bringing us to God's reaching everybody. Right, which is Christ and the gospel. Now then the New Testament uh, witnesses to that. What do you say about the problems that that seem to exist in the New Testament? And what are those problems? Let's do a brief sort of bullet point review of, what, of, of the problems people have with the New Testament. Yeah, uh, I mean, morally speaking, there's this um, seeming endorsement of slavery, as as Paul and in, in multiple of what you know what's called household codes, uh, especially like Ephesians chapter uh, six and Colossians three, and in the pastoral letters that you know there's this call to slaves to be submitted to their masters. So, you know, why didn't Paul? abolish slavery among the Christians. Mm-hmm. How is it that he didn't have that insight? Right. Um, and at the and also, you know, husbands and wives and these things that I would say are, you know, frankly misogynistic uh, that Paul says. And I can say that because, well, we'll talk about why I can say that. But, you know, I, I think that, and, and they're obviously, the Gospels record things. Some Sometimes, you know, they record the same thing. Sometimes they record wildly different things. You know, I was looking at when um, some people came to Jesus and said, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, uh, you know, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but I don't have anywhere to lay my head and all that. And that's recorded in both Matthew and in Luke, Matthew 8, Luke 9, I believe. But um, in Matthew, Jesus is in a very Jewish region. You know, he's actually in Capernaum. He's... Uh, as far as I can tell, he's at Peter's house. Um, and in Luke, he is in Samaria or in a, you know, a non-Jewish region. You know, the, the narrative takes on a whole, a very different flavor. If you think, well, he's talking to Jews or he's talking to Samaritans, which one's right? You know, uh, there's uh, one of them or both of them are historically inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always been attempts to harmonize the Gospels yeah. to say, well, no, these are two different uh, events where Jesus happened to have said the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. And that attempt to harmonize arises from the probably the re, the view of scripture that we're critiquing which says that if it's a holy book then it has to be scientifically accurate, historically accurate, yes. no internal inconsistencies and so on. Right. Right, exactly. And you know, I, I try to just I look at it like an impressionist painting. <laughs> you know, there's brush strokes going on a canvas and they're all Sometimes they're perpendicular and sometimes they're parallel and sometimes they're different colors. And up close, it just seems to be a gob of, uh, you know, just kind of a, a discordant mess. And when you back away, when you finally get to the right perspective, then it all clicks into a picture and you see a, the work of a genius behind it. And that's how I see 
scripture. When you get really, really, really close, you see a lot of discordant brushstrokes. But when you back really, really far away, or at least a couple of feet away, you see this this master stroke. And so, um, and the master stroke is what enables you to judge and critique even some of the passages and statements in the New Testament. Yes. That ma- that big picture view that you've been given from the text yes. is what allows you to see clearly that some of the things in the text are not for today. Right. Or or just straight up bad advice, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I, and I think that what we had to see is is that you know, the writers of the New Testament, I, I don't see any evidence that the writers of the New Testament thought they were writing inspired text, that this was a thus saith the Lord. I see a lot of places where it seems that that's the opposite, you know, where, and I think we mentioned this last time that, you know, Paul says, Hey, I think, I think this is from God. And, you know, I, I, I went back and double checked with those guys to make sure I had it right. You know, uh, there's a degree to which there's, uh, I don't know if it's, I guess it's humility. Uh, there's a degree to which they're just really honest about where they're getting their information and what their sources are and that kind of stuff. Um, so for those guys, you know, I, I think that we can give them a lot of grace in their worldview, their advice on particular issues in society, their historical failings. You know, most of the time these, these, the gospels were written with an agenda to teach, not to tell history. And so to take, an oral tradition about what Jesus did, but then to assemble it in a way that is advancing a doctrinal agenda. Mm-hmm. And so each of the books, I think, kind of have to stand on their own. Each of the Gospels, we have to both, again, it's this incarnational approach in the sense that we have to both see Jesus as he's depicted there, but also hear the author's um, intention and and to give value to that because I think, I think it's there, it's there to have. So, um, yeah, I think that probably maybe the best way to kind of wrap things up as we're running near the end of our time is that, um, this is something that we probably should touch on. Maybe we just need Alex to kind of crack the whip over us, but we need to get, you know, to this notion of what is the word of God. And and we've talked about that, um, here and there. And, you know, uh, just just one quick reference in Acts chapter six verse seven. I, I think there's a reason why why Luke can say at the beginning of his gospel, I did all the re- I did a lot of research and I you know I've, I've compiled a lot of information and and I just wanted to put it into one place. He's basically saying I didn't go to a cave and get words from an angel. Right. You know, I mean, and, and he's this is a human effort. Yes, yes, and so uh, you know, it it's it seems. It seems like slander for us to critique the Bible for not fitting our preconceptions about inspiration when the Bible itself says, hey, it's not what you think, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so it's not fair for I us I worked to really say, hard on this. I conducted interviews and yes, took notes. Yes. Yeah. Very much a human work. And yet it's been stitched into our holy book. And now all of a sudden it ought to be unassailable where that was never the claim that was made of it in the first place. But what it does claim is that it's going to give us a degree of certainty about the thing that we have believed. That's what he says to Theophilus. He's like, I did this so that you would have certainty over the thing that you believed. And doesn't John say the same thing at the end of his gospel? Right. Yeah. 
So it's, it's not so much about revelation as it is confirmation, as it is consolidation. Um, and, but the revelation is the word of God that we're going to talk about. And in Acts 6, 7, he says, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem rest, um, increased rapidly. So the Bible spread. Right, because but the Bible was already there because they were in Jerusalem. <laughs> no, the the modern yeah. reader, the modern reader, the person who grows up in church understands the Word of God to be the Bible. Yes, and is confused by a phrase like that potentially because they might think that means the Bible spread. Right, and obviously that wasn't the case. I mean, they didn't have a printing press. The Bible was already there in the terms of the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, I mean, this is Judea, so it's not even like. You know, they, they translated the Bible into Greek and they sent it. I guess there was already the Greek translation, but that, you know, they, they, they were the Gideons or something. But that they had an oral message that Luke calls the Word of God. And then when this message moves from Jerusalem out to Samaria, again in Acts chapter 8, 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the Word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. So... There's this word of God that's being spoken of, and almost everywhere that I can think of in the New Testament, the phrase word of God refers to this proclamation that is spreading in Acts. There's one place I can think of where the word of God refers to Scripture, Hebrews 4.12. And that, you know, there's one place in the New Testament. Other than that, uh, every place that I can think of, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm open to being corrected on this, but every place I can think of, it's referring to the proclamation, the preaching about Jesus, about Jesus, yeah. And uh, I mean, I was just teaching on the Sunday on Second Timothy, and you know, Second Timothy three, I think, around verse eight, Paul says, "Remember my gospel, which is Jesus raised from the dead, descended from David," and then he goes on and says. If you do this, you will be a faithful servant of God's word, you know, or a, a steward of God's word. And so this gospel is this message about Jesus that is God's word. Mm -hmm. And so for the writers of the New Testament, I feel like they were okay to be a bit reckless. <laughs> you know, Paul could write something like, I think this is from God, but maybe it's not because they were working with the net. Everybody they were writing to had already received the word of God. Mm -hmm. And they could test what he said against the word of God, exactly. which was the proclamation about Jesus. Yes. And that also kind of, it dislodges Jesus from the gospels. You know, if you were to, if I were to come to you and say, hey, it's not about the Bible, it's about Jesus. And you would say, but what do you learn about Jesus? And I'd say the Bible, you know. But the fact of the matter is, is that for the first 300 years of, of this Christian experiment, there wasn't the Bible. There, they didn't have that readily available. I mean, they had collections of letters and churches had these that they were beginning to compile. But for the most part, that revelation was still that, that oral tradition and that proclamation. I mean, it's that which they used to decide which letters, which documents were added to the New Testament. So are we accurate then to, as modern uh, Christians, to call the Bible the Word of God? having done the study and seen that actually in the New Testament, the phrase, the word of God refers to the proclamation about Jesus. Well, I, I don't think we're wrong to say that in the sense that I, I think the Bible is, you know, inspired of God. It is, does reveal God. It is words from God. 
Um, I, I think it's just misleading because we think that that means that to do what God wants, we have to read and obey the words in the Bible. Um, and that both, it both presents a, an inferior standard and a, and a overly complicated standard at the same time. And, and so what we end up with are Christians who know they're not doing everything God wants them to do. And we end up with Christians who are majoring in minors, arguing about stuff that just doesn't amount to a hill of beans. And so we're, we're, we're overly conscientious over stuff that doesn't matter. And we're underly expectant, you know, we're about how this ought to change our lives and how we should live. And so it, it's unfortunate that we do that because we've taken the spotlight off of the gospel. We failed to see that that's the word of God. And I hope that we get to re- reclaim that someday. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's a good place to end. Uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us today for the Faith Recovery Podcast. We'll look forward to seeing you next time. And get to feeling better, Alex. Mm. Okay, bye.